Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. What do you think about the book of Proverbs? I know that for me, when I read it, I sense there's such wisdom and depth there, but at the same time, feel like I'm missing out on a lot as well, just because of the style and because of cultural differences. Well, thankfully, Jerry Wirrell has been working on a major project on the book of Proverbs, a translation project, as well as extensive study notes. And in this episode, he's going to guide us through to be able to read the book of Proverbs more fruitfully and have less of it go over our heads so that we are able to really engage and take advantage of this ancient wisdom that can really help us today. So here now is Interview 27, Understanding Proverbs with Jerry Weirwell. Today in the studio, we have Jerry Weirwell. I'm so excited. And he's going to be talking to us about Proverbs in light of the work he does on the Revised English Version, which you can access at revisedenglishversion.com. And he's just been part of the translation process for the book of Proverbs. And he's done a lot of work on that, that he is going to be putting into a book shortly. So welcome today to Restitutio, Jerry. Thanks, Sean. Glad I could be here. So I thought before we get into the book of Proverbs directly, we could start by talking about poetry as a style of writing in the Old Testament. Get us started here. What is Hebrew poetry and how does it work? Well, Hebrew poetry is a specific style of writing as in, you know, in our uh, Western English literature, we have, we have poetry as well. We have prose. And the major distinction between the two is that poetry is like a, a higher form of writing that depends upon a certain structure, a certain type of uh, sound, word sounds, and uh, other literary devices. Whereas prose is more or less just plain, straightforward uh, sentence structure with a subject, verb, predicate, and it continues uh, from thought to thought, where poetry is, is usually highly metaphorical and figurative and can have uh, very uh, dissimilar ideas juxtaposed to each other. As far as a uh, Old Testament perspective, what are the places where we find concentrations of Hebrew poetry? Well, predominantly in the Old Testament, the poetry is found in the wisdom literature genre of the Old Testament, which would be like the book of Job, uh, Psalms and Proverbs, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Uh, each one of those uh, is has a huge concentration of, of poetry within it, but each one has uh, very diversified types of poetry. Today I'd like to talk about the kind of poetry you find in the book of Proverbs specifically. So let, let's talk about poetry within the book of Proverbs. What kind of poetry do we find there? Is it pretty much the same as in other places, or is it different? Uh, it's very different. Uh, most poetry is designed to be very vivid to the reader, to give the reader an, an illuminated sense of uh, the message. Uh, poetry is like a formal way of trying to place into the mind and memory of the reader a particular message or an idea. And biblical poetry usually depends upon uh, syntax and some rhyme, uh, not as much as it does in, in English in our Western poetry. But biblical poetry, and particularly in the book of Proverbs, is specifically intended to be didactic and mnemonic, meaning it's supposed to teach the reader something specific, but also it's written in a way that's supposed to help the reader be able to remember it. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the poetry in Proverbs is extremely terse, uh, very pithy, short little sayings that are aphoristic in, in nature. Uh, a lot of times are, are maxims or just, you know, state, general, general statements, categorical statements, things like that. And we'll get into a little bit about how that functions in the book of Proverbs theologically uh, later on. But in the book of Proverbs, even itself, you find a diversity of poetry. Okay. If you read the book of Proverbs, you will notice a huge difference in the type of poetry between chapters 1 through 10 and then 10 through 29. 
-hmm. And then you have a different kind in 30 and 31. And there's actually several different collections of writings in the, in the book of Proverbs. And, and those usually line up with different styles of poetry. In the early chapters of the book of Proverbs, you'll find that there will be long, almost chapter-long poems that, and all the verse sets or the, the lines of the, of the chapter are intended to compose one whole poetic structure. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you get to chapter 10 and move on, usually they're dyadic or two-line poetic structures, primarily sometimes triadic. Uh, and they usually stand alone. Mm -hmm. So you'll be able to pull out like a one type of a statement, uh, one saying, it can, it can be on its own. Whereas if you go back in like chapter five, seven, something like that, you pull out one verse, you, it could be, you could be very, uh, you could be proof texting mm -hmm. because they're intended to, to flow one through, through the next. And to understand why something is said, you kind of have to read the poem, uh, you know, gaining context and things right. like that. Right. As far as your work on Proverbs goes, how would you say that it has affected you? But just before we get into more details, I mean, there are all kinds of people listening in to this conversation, at least I hope. Some of them are kind of, or uh, maybe the kind of person who likes to read a portion of Proverbs every day. And then there are others who probably just don't ever read Proverbs because it's maybe confusing or just too fast-paced. Sometimes I feel that way where you read through a chapter and it's just like, it's like a machine gun effect happening. What, what have been the benefits for you doing this project and really soaking in this material for so many months? I think that there's been two major benefits. One has been that I've slowed down, honestly. Reading Proverbs, uh, it's extremely deep, and the meaning is usually not on the surface. That's the intent of, of poetry is to, to be very uh, rich. Uh, and diverse. And so it's caused me to slow down and I've had to really think more about the text. Also, I've become much more familiar with the type of literary devices used in the biblical culture. And that's even translated a lot into New Testament studies as well. Maybe we'll talk a little bit more later on. Uh, the idea of personification is extremely huge in the book of Proverbs. And a lot of times we don't uh, readily come to the text of the Bible thinking that inanimate objects, ideas, concepts, abstract thoughts are personified because usually we don't talk like that in, in the West. And even in poetry, it's, it's not as common as it definitely is in, in biblical poetry. So would you say that learning how the book of Proverbs works, how these various structures and literary conventions come together to communicate wisdom, that this for you has opened the book up for you and helped you to understand it better? Oh, absolutely, indeed. I think it's actually essential to really have an understanding of Hebrew poetry in order to appreciate and get into the book of Proverbs and, and understand what it has to, to say. Otherwise, I think it's sort of like trying to, if you try to just uh, jump into the book of Proverbs, you're most likely going to be overwhelmed, you're probably going to be confused, and you're going to think that there's a lot of contradictions. Right. Well, let's so let's let's dive in a little deeper. What else do we need to know about poetry and proverbs? Yeah. So let's talk a, a little bit real quick. So the idea of uh, poetry is that statements in proverbs specifically are usually at least paired. Um, we're talking like you know chapter ten through twenty nine here because that's where a lot of the a lot of proverbs people read and and you've heard maybe heard quoted usually come from the, that section and those are it's easy to deal with that but we'll also talk about some of the longer poems as well but the idea is that when you have one line of poetry and i like an example here um there's a great book it's written by robert alter it's called the art of biblical poetry and it's a book that talks about the different forms of biblical poetry in the old testament and in his section on the book of proverbs he talks about the way that you can't just take a single part of a verse set of a, of a proverb and, and make it stand alone. And he gives the example, for, even from English, this is problematic as well. There's been a couple famous examples uh, from like Alexander Pope, uh, one of the famous poets of the 18th century. You may have heard this line, a little learning is a dangerous thing. That's from Alexander Pope. Now, taken by itself, what does that insinuate? That... A little learning is a dangerous thing, meaning should you just learn a little bit of something or learning a little bit of something can be bad. Mm -hmm. Well, what 
he goes on to say here is that this comes from the couplet, which has to be read together to understand what the point Pope is trying to get at. The whole line is, a little learning is a dangerous thing. Drink deep or taste not the Perean spring. And so the original meaning can be distorted if you take the single line away from its paired uh, counterpart. There's another uh, example where fools rush in where angels fear to tread. Another common English poetic line. Now this, if you just take that alone, it sounds like that you should not do an, an imprudent undertaking uh, about some daunting or dangerous task. But what Pope actually says is, here's the line. Nay, fly to altars where they'll talk you dead, for fools rush in where angels fear to tread. And the idea being that if you allow these critics to follow you around and harangue you, that they'll even go into the sanctuary of the church to taunt you. But you wouldn't get that type of an understanding if you just had the one line alone. Right. You need the context. Yeah. And so that that is extremely important in the book of Proverbs as well as to get the entire couplet or the verse set together to find out what's being contrasted or what's being compared. Let's l talk a little bit about some of the Proverbs that have these type of characteristics. Sure, sure. Uh, right before we do that, you remind me of our soundbite culture where we want to just take a short phrase. I mean, think of Twitter, for example, You're, so many characters and then it's already too long or a news headline, or a blog post headline, it's always got to be short. And we may end up shrinking down a proverb and excerpting out just one little part of it. But then, by doing that, we miss out the context, like you just pointed out there. And as a result, we think we're getting wisdom, because it sounds pithy, and it sounds so true to life or whatever, but it, it could be actually opposite of what the proverb is trying to say. All right. Well, before we look at some examples, I need to mention that what really stands out as the characteristic form or structure of proverbs poetry is the use of what's called parallelism. Right. Meaning you have two lines that are somehow placed in a connection together in a relation to each other. And how they're placed in relation to each other is then what defines the meaning of those two lines and their interdependence on each other. So what kinds of parallelism do we find? Well, you can. there's a lot of different kinds of parallelism. Uh, let me just read a couple here real quick, is that you'll find there's lines that are synonymous, like equivalent lines. You'll have one line say one thing, and then the next line will say the same thing, just in a different way. Mm -hmm. And that's not the Bible just being dull or, or slow. Or redundant. No, it's, it's, it's actually a way of enriching and diversifying the expressions. Yeah, I seem to remember a Monty Python where they made fun of that, and they just said the same thing with different words like a million times where they were making fun of the Bible, which I didn't really appreciate, but that's not what the Bible is doing. This is, this is actually a craft. This is an artistic expression, and it takes some skill to be able to say the same thing twice with different words. And I, I feel like, too, there's probably a lot of resonances as English readers that we're missing out as well between those lines. But uh, what else do we have other than synonymous? Yeah, unfortunately, you're absolutely right that not all the Hebrew aspects of the poetry can be brought across into English. A lot of the word puns and stuff end up getting lost. Uh, but there's also the major type of parallelism is that of antithesis, meaning you have a positive statement and then you have a negative statement that negates that something polar opposite. Uh, you also have what's called synthesis or like an elaboration or an intensification where you have one line say something and the next line will like expound upon it or we'll actually uh, raise it to a new degree of, uh, of intensity or uh, use more vivid terminology, more graphic imagery. Uh, do you have another one or no? So yeah, those yeah. three I'm familiar with, but is yeah, there yeah. another one too? Uh, there's another one is that the other one that's major known is called uh, the riddle form, which is where you have one line will say one thing, the next line will say something that augments it, not like in an explanatory way, but in a more like a um, puzzle. I see. So can you show us some examples of these so that we can see these in action? Yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's look uh, at like maybe some antithetical parallelism, since that's the most common form really found in the book of Proverbs. In, in Proverbs 10.25, it says, when the, and this is from the ESV version, when the tempest passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous is established forever. 
So there's two things being said here. There's what happens to the wicked and what happens to the righteous. One, one thing happens to the wicked that they're gone. Then there'll be no more. The opposite thing is said to happen to the righteous, that they'll be established forever. And so this we call this antithesis, yeah, poetry, mm-hmm. where you have you'll have the two or antithetical lines, poetry. Yeah, you'll have two lines saying polar opposite things. For another one, uh, Proverbs eleven twelve: Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. So you have the person who has no sense <laughs> speaking. They're running their mouth, and you have the person who has understanding not speaking. Right, they're quiet. Mm-hmm. And then the last one here, let's Proverbs twelve five: The thoughts of the righteous are just; the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. The items of this parallelism are are equated to each other, where you have thoughts and counsels, the righteous and the wicked, just being just and being deceitful. Right. And so it's, it's basically just the antithetical parallelism shows you both sides of the coin. And usually they're intended to just describe uh, characteristically a certain quality of life, a certain type of behaviorism. And what we um, need to know about Proverbs, which we might talk about later on when it comes to theology, is the moral and circumstantial consequentiality that's behind the Proverbs, meaning what we get here in the antithesis between the righteous and the wicked, the, the person who has no sense and the un, one who has understanding, is that there is a difference in outcome with these type of characteristics and behaviors or life choices. Basically, the moral consequentiality is that if you're a good person, that's a good thing. You'll have good things. Mm-hmm. Not that it's a type of formulaic expression that uh, every person who's good should get good things. It's just, it's a, from a divine perspective, you'd say that good people get good things, bad people get bad things. And it's intended to be persuasive in a, as a type of rhetoric to get people to lead a certain type of lifestyle. Okay. Uh, what about some examples of the other ones, synonymous or syn- synthetic? Yeah, let's look at equivalents here or uh, the synonymous one. So like Proverbs eleven twenty two. It says, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. That's one of my favorites. <laughs> it's just a, such a funny expression. Yeah. So we, it, basically, it's taking two different imageries, the pig and the woman, and comparing them together and, and making them like one is the other. So like the gold ring in a pig's snout, well, that's like a beautiful woman who has no discretion. And also like in 2514, like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift that he does not give. Mm-hmm. Sort of the idea that you have clouds in the sky, which are usually foreboding of rain. Right. However, you see the clouds, no rain comes. Same thing with a guy who says he's going to do something, never does it. You know, it's just they're equating the imageries together. And the last one here, 26.1 says, like snow in summer or rain in harvest, so honor is not fitting for a fool. Now, in this comparison here, the two item, the two imageries that are being equated is that snow in summer and rain in harvest are things that just don't happen. Right. You know, the, it's just completely out of place. It's it's like saying a hot ice cube. A hot ice cube. Yeah, something that's really illogical and absurd almost. Mm-hmm. Same thing is it's compared to honor is not fitting for a fool. That fools just don't have honor. It just doesn't work. You know they. Mm-hmm make choices and act and behave in ways that are dishonorable. The third one being the synthesis one, right. which could also be like an elaboration or an intensification. It's like Proverbs eleven ten: when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. Now here we have an initial statement that when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. Okay, so we have an initial statement. But then we have a contrary statement, but it's not an antithesis. Because if it was an antithesis, we would expect, and when it goes well with the wicked, the city mourns right. or, the, or the city like uh, is upset. But rather it says when the wicked perish, there are shouts of glass. So the, the intensification is that the city rejoices, first of all, over the righteous when things are well. Mm-hmm. The city also rejoices even more so, shouts of gladness when the wicked perish. Right. So we have these, uh, the antithetical where you have really two opposite statements 
squished up together. You have synonymous where you're, you're basically saying the same thing with different words. And now this synthetic is where it builds together or elaborates further. It says one thing and then it it's saying something else about that one thing, but it's not exactly the same. It's just something that goes along with it. Uh, I always think of Psalm 1 where it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. So it starts with the man who's walking not in the counsel of the wicked. Then it, it moves to he doesn't even stand in the way of sinners. Actually, then it says he doesn't even sit in the seat of scoffers. So he doesn't walk, he doesn't stand, he doesn't even sit with these people. His delight is in the Lord. So it's just kind of like building on that same idea, intensifying it. Of course, that's not in Proverbs, but it's, it's a Hebrew poetic device that we see used in multiple books. So I, I think that's really one of the more difficult ones to spot. Yeah, I mean, that's a classic example of intensification in Psalm 1 there. And the idea with behind the synthetic or the elaboration or intensification form is that there's usually a common element in the two lines that links them together. And to spot that is then to spot the point of what is being compared. So here's another one. Proverbs 11:29. Whoever troubles his own household will inherit the wind, and the fool will be servant to the wise of heart. This is kind of a... Uh, elaboration is that you have somebody who behaves in ways that bring trouble upon their family and says they will inherit the wind, which is a really cool uh, metaphor for just basically getting nothing. Goose egg. Yeah, (laughs) you get nothing. (laughs) But then the second line, and the fool will be servant to the wise of heart, is that not only just not just somebody uh, who troubles their household will not get anything, if you are foolish enough to bring problems upon your family, you'll end up being a servant. You'll serve somebody else, Mm -hmm. the person who actually has wisdom, which is one of the major themes in the book of Proverbs if we, when we talk about the theology later on. And the last one here, uh, Proverbs 22, 15, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Now this one is, is clearly an elaboration here that there's a statement that, you know, a child has foolishness in their heart. Mm-hmm. Now the foolishness, how do you deal with that? Well, the proverb says that the rod of discipline will affect it. It will drive it from him. And so the elaboration is you have the problem and then you have a course of action to address it. And some there's some proverbs like that where it gives a, a premise and then it gives a course of action. Right. So what, what about the other category? You had one more. Yeah. The last one is, is kind of the more interesting one. It's a not a formal parallelism, but it's called the the riddle form according to Alter. Right. Yeah. And in, in twenty Proverbs twenty verse five, it says the purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Now there is a parallelism here, but the element that's being compared is the way that deep water is then drawn out. And the imagery is using that of a well drawing water out of a well. Now, the question comes in the real form is, so what are you supposed to learn from this proverb? Okay, so the purpose of man's heart is like deep water. Okay, so it's, it's maybe mysterious or it's something that's deep-seated, you know, something that he holds, he holds uh, within him. Uh, but a man who has understanding, a man of understanding will draw it out. Well, how will he, how will he draw it out? Now, that's the riddle. Is, is, will he draw it out because he knows how to understand another person's heart? He'll ask the right questions. He'll be patient enough until the man tells him what's in his heart. I mean, that, that's part of the, the way that Proverbs invites the reader to contemplate its meaning. And so the riddle forms are usually some of the most rich and difficult Proverbs to understand because there's so much there. There's, like, there's many layers. Like take this one, Proverbs 21, 31. The horse is made ready for the day of battle but the victory belongs to the Lord. So you have a situation where you have this imagery of like this battle horse that's um, fully armored and outfitted and hooked up to the chariot getting ready to to charge out. Right. So then what follows is not an elaboration of that scene. It's a switch. It's that there's no longer the horse. It's now the Lord. The horse doesn't give you the victory. The Lord gives you the victory. So is it telling you not to trust in your <laughs> earthly possessions? Is it telling you that you shouldn't 
You shouldn't rely upon the usual type of tools and instruments that are used to accomplish a task, such as going to war with a horse. I mean, everybody goes to war with a horse, right? So it's kind of, you have to look in, look deeper beyond the surface yeah. to try and figure out what is being paired together. And I'll right. give you a, a last one here is in Proverbs twenty-seven nineteen. This one's actually really cool. As in water, face reflects face. So the heart of a man reflects the man. Now, the interesting thing about this proverb, so the literal translation of this verse is like water face to face, thus the heart of man to man. Such a succinct statement. Now, we, it takes a little bit of understanding to get that the idea is that it's the face is reflected in the water right. and that the man is reflected by the man, like who, the, like the heart of the man is reflected by the man. And then comes oh, the question of the riddle is, so why is water used here to reflect? Is it just because it you know, has a smooth surface and offers mm -hmm. the ability to reflect? Or is it that water can distort a reflection at times and cannot be a true reflection all the time? So the heart of man may vary at times as well. And you may, you may not really know who the man is by the heart uh, on a consistent basis for, you know, as Jesus talks about, sometimes what's in the heart of a man is wicked right. and out of the abundance of the heart he speaks and all of us have changed our hearts at different points in our lives. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of, it's one of those things that it's intriguing and it's asking the reader to sort of ponder the wisdom that is offered through that type of a, of a riddle form. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really learning a lot here, Jerry. I appreciate you uh, spelling this out. As in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects the man. I'm thinking, all right, you look in the water, and what you see there is a reflection of your face. In the ancient world, they didn't have mirrors, so this was really the time you had to get a look at what you looked like. That's something you can't normally see. If you weren't rich, because if you're rich, you had a polished brass. Right, you could polish some metal. Bronze. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then, uh, so the heart of man reflects a man. So like you have whoever, uh, this is just what I'm thinking right now, but like you have whatever you show the world, your external characteristics, your possessions, your family lineage, your occupation, whatever you have in that, in that culture. But that's not really who you are, who you really are, just like what you really look like as reflected there in the water is what your heart is. So anyhow, I, that might not be the right, right interpretation either, but I really do appreciate this riddle proverb in that it, it draws you in to make you ponder. And I, I feel like I honestly have read proverbs incorrectly in the past where I'm, I'm just like almost treating it like a chapter and I'm just like, all right, I'm going to read this chapter I feel like that's just not a helpful way or the best way to get to get through it. I mean, to pause, to consider, to like really mull it over, I think is much better. I think you have to, especially when you get into some of these more complicated Proverbs that aren't so straightforward. I mean, some of them might be like here in Proverbs 10, 4, idle hands make one poor, but diligent hands bring riches. This is a, a really clear example of circumstantial consequentiality that, you know, what, how do you make wealth? Well, you make wealth by working hard. If you don't work, which are idle hands, you know, hands that don't do anything, that just makes you poor because you don't, you don't produce right. wealth by just sitting around. You know, so it, it's sort of like teaching the principle that wealth is made by working. And if you don't work, you don't make money. So if you just sit around, you're going to be poor. If you work hard, you'll be you'll receive wealth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there certainly are some straightforward ones. But what what about when you you mentioned there? If you just read Proverbs on its face, you can come away with contradictions. Like for example, Proverbs twenty six four, where it says, "Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself." And then verse five, "Answer a fool according to his folly." lest he be wise in his own eyes. And I have heard skeptics and critics of the Bible point this out as just what idiot could believe in this book or think this is from God if it has such a blatant contradiction right there. I mean, how do you, how do you respond and, and how, what, what can this show us about how we should read the Proverbs more profitably? Yeah, Sean, this is actually uh, one of the 
classic examples of, of apparent contradiction in the book of Proverbs where you have back-to-back proverbial statements that say literally the opposite thing. This only opposes a problem when people try to take a completely literalistic expectation of the book of Proverbs as though it is supposed to give universal truth claims, mm-hmm. which when we talk, if we want to talk about wisdom literature genre alone, it, it is not meant to do that. It's not, that's not its design. And mm-hmm. poetic literature on top of that, it much less so even. Right. So uh, if we could make a distinction, we have the genre of law, for example, where there are commandments given to the children of Israel by which they must live. For example, do not work on the Sabbath day. And then uh, there was this guy who was picking up sticks to make a fire, and they're like, what do we do? And, and he's like, well, execute them. There was no wiggle room on that law. Like, it was straightforward. You don't work. And this guy was doing work. So then you have this wisdom genre. You say, well, it, it's not really designed to basically tell you exactly what to do. So, like, what is it for? Yeah. Like, how does it work? Wisdom, wisdom literature is designed to affect your perspective. It's designed to build within the reader a type of worldview and mentality, a way of thinking. And Proverbs specifically, the idea that is drilled in time and time again is that wisdom will end up yielding fruit, good fruit in one's life. Foolishness will end up being destructive, bringing somebody pain and heartache, and same thing with righteousness and wickedness, that it's, it's trying to get the reader to realize that there are decisions to be made in life. And depending upon how you approach the decision and what you value, it'll, it'll affect the outcome. Now, as you just said, you know, Proverbs doesn't offer a law code of basically, you must do this, you must not do that. Yeah, or the one who works hard gets rich that's not a a guarantee it's not a a promise it's not that's not a permissory thing that you know if somebody works hard then they're going to get rich there are a lot of people who work hard their whole lives and and they get you know money and they're able to survive and get by but they don't accumulate great wealth but if you read proverbs in a promissory way or a way that seems to be like a law code then they should be receiving lots of money Mm -hmm. because they're doing exactly what proverbs said and I think that that's the problem for things like in Proverbs 26, 4 and 5 here. We do the same thing in English. When you understand the poetic nature and wisdom literature genre, uh, it's really readily understandable that there's no contradiction here. There's just a difference in emphasis. We have things in, in English like um, look before you leap. Right. But then you, we also have uh, other expressions that will go against that, meaning if you wait, you lose. Mm-hmm. Well, which one is it? Look before you leap or don't wait or you lose. So the idea here is, you know, don't answer a fool according to his foolishness or you'll you'll be like him. And then the next one, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Now, what's the difference? Well, the difference is in the circumstances. Right. There's a time when you shouldn't entertain the foolishness of a fool or else you're going to look stupid too. And then there's a time in which you should basically rebuke a fool or else people will think and he himself he or she himself will think that they are right if you don't actually oppose them that there are times in which you need to speak up and correct a situation or misconception so it's really circumstantially driven as to when proverbs as a as the wisdom of god needs to be and should be properly employed right so this is what you were saying before, circumstantial consequentiality. Yeah, and, and moral moral and circumstantial. Mm-hmm. Specifically with the moral category is that the righteous and the wicked, there's a lot of descriptions about what those type of what that type of character and lifestyle will end up bringing about. Mm-hmm. And it comes from a, you know, like I said, the divine perspective of that God approves of righteous living and God condemns wicked living. Mm-hmm. And he and the book of Proverbs conveys that through very graphic imagery of the idea that, well, the righteous person is like a tree of life and the wicked, the cords of Sheol, you know, wrap around and entangle the wicked person. Or, you know, there's all kinds of really graphic ways to basically say, if you're wicked, you're doing the wrong thing. If you're righteous, you're doing the right thing. And they don't 
just flat out say that because in poetry, what you do is you describe a position through usually metaphor, metonymy, all kinds of figurative language that just enriches and, and makes the idea sort of like a living picture for the person. And so when you come to Proverbs and you think so literalistically about it, I think you'll get lost real quick. Yeah. And you'll you'll just kind of throw your hands up probably because you'll be like, this is all over the place. How can anyone live, you know, according like this? I don't see any of this happening in the world. Right. When um when you see rich people prospering and thriving, the whole book of Proverbs basically says if you live wickedly, your life is gonna go down the hill, you're gonna die and 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 basically a bunch of bad catastrophes are gonna befall you. Well we we probably all know a lot of people who do not live righteously and they live lives that don't seem to be doing all that bad. Yeah. This reminds me of the genre in the Psalms of orientation using uh, Walter Brueggemann's categories here. These are psalms where the righteous are rewarded and the wicked are punished. The sky is blue, the sun is shining, and everything is going the way it's supposed to go. If you train up a child, that child remains. You know, And then you have these other psalms, the psalms of disorientation, where it's exactly upside down. You have sought God and righteousness, and yet your enemies have risen against you, and you're suffering, and... You don't understand, and you don't know what to do. And it's interesting because in the Psalms, you have both of those, right? sometimes right next to each other, sometimes in the same Psalm, where it'll start out with the whole idea of doing things God's way and, and the blessings coming, and then it moves to a, a state of disorientation where you got sick or you, got, you lost a war or something like that. And then some of those disorienting moments god will deliver others the person just stays in it and then you have the last move once again these are brueggemann's categories which is called reorientation and that's where now that you've been through a period of disorientation where things didn't work the way they're supposed to work from a moral perspective now you're in a position where you're back into orientation you're back into the righteous being rewarded the wicked being punished but with an appreciation and a gratitude for having gotten through the tough period in your life. So I hate to drag us back into Psalms again, <laughs> but um, this this idea that we see in Proverbs is this sort of like assumption of orientation that like things, the compass is, is pointing to true north. And then we get to a book like Ecclesiastes, and now it's like the wheels have fallen off, the race is not to the swift, and just enjoy your pathetic life. So, I mean, that's uh, that's a whole other kind of wisdom literature, a much more subversive you know, perspective on things. But uh, I feel like looking at two verses, like we, we've been puzzling over verse uh, 26, 4, and 5 here about the fool, answer him or answer him not, and then universalizing that as the, the way that all of the, the biblical poetry works is just absolutely unfair to the complexity and diversity we see within Scripture, which, in my view, matches the complexity and diversity we see in real life. Because there are some people where, hey, you just did the right thing, and God blessed you, and you had a good life. And then there are other people where that wasn't the pattern. But if you're going to make a general saying... It should apply to the the general situation, which is generally if you work hard, you get ahead in life. But your point is still valid that sometimes somebody like a slave can work and work and work and work, and they're still a slave when they die, you know, which is tragic, yeah. obviously. Um, what else do we need to know about theology while we're kind of winding down here a little bit? Yeah, I think that's probably the last category we should talk about is the theological content of the book of Proverbs. And I think that it comes down to that there are a lot of different motives, theological motives in the book of Proverbs, there are Proverbs that are promissory, meaning that they, they are promise-making. One would be such something like Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6, says that the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. That is a true statement. Absolute, mm-hmm. unequivocal truth. Right. That's not based on the circumstance. Yeah. Uh, the other idea, you know, there's things such as Proverbs 1.7, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there there are statements in Proverbs that are 
truth claims. So don't mistake that all poetic verses must be completely figurative and have some sort of like just uh, an eth- a, limi- a limited scope. Yeah, or an ethical or uh, life perspective motive behind it. Some of them really are just plain theologically grounded. But then there's others that they're more along the lines of what Proverbs really actually means, you know, the Hebrew word mashal, that they are wise sayings. They're sayings that are intended to convey to the reader some sort of understanding about how to approach the world. A lot of them are to convey, you know, so if you would look at a a hundred cases of people who do this type of stuff, is there a general outcome that is seen? You know, is there like a, the majority of people experience such and such an outcome if they do such and such a thing? Mm-hmm. For example, people who work hard, do they generally see profit coming back to them from their hard labor? People usually receive a wage or they receive fruit from the, from the field or, you know, and basically work produces something. Right. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a general maxim that that's, that's how the world works. And so there's a lot of proverbs that basically that's what they do. They try to teach the reader how to live with wisdom. And the whole book of Proverbs, that's, that's the main idea is to get wisdom. Like in Proverbs 4, 7, it says the beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom and whatever you get, get insight or understanding. The most important thing to be gained from the proverbial sayings or the wise sayings of the book of Proverbs is that they offer insight They offer wisdom in order to make correct choices in life, choices that will ultimately be to the greatest benefit for you, choices that will reflect godly living, choices that will lead you in the way of righteousness. One of the major themes in Proverbs is the idea of a road, Mm -hmm. the idea that there's a path to take. And if you take one path, it leads toward one destination, usually what's called life. Now, that's not necessarily just breathing, biological, you're alive, but it's life in the sense of that it leads you to living the way that God designed life to be lived, living to the fullest, living with uh, joy, enthusiasm, living a life that reflects his mercy, his justice, things like that. The other path goes toward death. Death uh, symbolizes all bad things that are in the world, um, wickedness, violence, injustice, deceit. Uh, And a major theme in Proverbs is the idea of lust and the idea of um, entertaining and going after one's uh, desires. Adultery. And and the the foreigner, the strange woman. Mm -hmm. So uh, theologically speaking, Proverbs is extremely important. It may not have this doctrinal foundation of where it tries to set out like a treaty of, of a certain theological topic, mm-hmm. its topic is wisdom. And what is wisdom? And what does wisdom look like if you were to try to paint a mural on the wall of what wisdom would look like in, in action? In life choices, wisdom does this. In your mind, in your heart, wisdom says this. And so if, if the reader will come to Proverbs with a, a humility and meekness and a willingness to try to grasp what that wisdom is, Proverbs says that wisdom will come into you and will teach you. And that's part of the personification in the book of Proverbs, that wisdom is like an educator. It's like a woman who calls out to you to come into her home and eat at her table, Mm -hmm. and she will feed you with good things. Yeah, it's interesting how much female imagery there is in the book of Proverbs, both on the good side and on the bad side of of the equation. Now, as I'm sitting here listening to you talk about wisdom and, and the mural analogy i'm thinking about our own culture today where it's just so topsy-turvy it's so hard to see which way is up in so many arenas we're bombarded with fake news we have uh just an absurd absurdly polarized political situation we have a level of public discourse that quite frankly if someone from another country was here and they they saw how we handle ourselves in public discourse with like excessive political correctness on one side and then excessive shaming and outrage on another, I would be embarrassed, really. And there are all these different paths laid out 
before us. You know, the classic one that you and I both probably grew up with is, all right, go to college. Because if you go to college, that's your golden ticket. And if you need to borrow money, however much it is, just borrow it. Because once you graduate college, you're going to get a job that's so high paying that you'll be able to pay off your loans, buy a house, sail off into the sunset, and have a great life. And what we, what we saw instead was a lot of people did that. They borrowed too much. They couldn't handle all the financial pressure and the jobs weren't really there or they weren't as high paying or they laid you off. So th- this conventional wisdom, like in the American dream, so to speak, that, you know, speaking of like the 50s American dream where you get a, a two-car garage and a white picket fence or whatever, and, uh, you know, just the husband works and the wife can stay home with the kid, you know, that's that world is gone. The world you and I grew up in is, is pretty much gone. So wisdom, the wisdom of our age is constantly shifting, right? And there, there, there was a move at a certain point where it seemed like everyone was saying, oh, forget college, just, just go get a trade. Go become a plumber, an electrician, get, get some sort of marketable skill, and then the job will be there. And then, you know, sometimes, you, and, and I've seen it where somebody's done that, and then the job still wasn't there for him because everybody else just did that too. And so now that market's saturated. Or, or for nursing, you know, I mean, now it's a four-year degree instead of two. So they're, 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 I feel like we stand on shifting sands, and a book like Proverbs can help us navigate the complexity of life with some general principles that we can work out the implications of in our own lives. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, culture really can never offer uh, a stable worldview. It can really never offer um, a stable approach to to any any sort of godly living because uh, it's this is you know the spirit of the age. It's the uh, the prince of the power of the air who really works in, in our culture, and, and I don't think that we're able we can ever really rely upon that so that's that's why it's so imperative to really be able to ground yourself i think in godly wisdom and the book of proverbs really is one of the gold mines in the bible to discover god's wisdom you know there's a proverb that really addresses that type of thing that we even see in you know today as you're talking about seeing everything on the media proverbs 14 15 says the inexperienced one believes anything (laughs) but the sensible one watches his steps you know, we, we always talk about, you know, don't believe everything you read on the internet. Most of our culture does. The but, internet, TV, movies, and friends. Yeah, yeah. And so Proverbs is basically saying, you know, be cautious and think things through. You know, don't don't just jump to conclusions. Don't just believe everything you hear. Right. You know, so. Well, thank you for that. Let's talk about this book. I'm so excited about it. Uh, you were telling me about it a little bit before we started recording. So, What's your vision for this book, and what do you think it will do to help people understand the book of Proverbs better? Well, this book is, uh, the text comes from the translation that my colleague, uh, John Shaneheit, myself, and then one of our mutual friends, Dustin Smith, mm-hmm. and we've, work, we've worked on uh, retranslating the book of Proverbs for uh, the last half a year. And that project was geared toward a individual volume book on Proverbs that had the new text that we have, along with uh, a couple hundred reader notes that I have been working on, Mm -hmm. uh, which are basically like study notes, and then also some space to be able to journal or annotate uh, in the margin as well. And the vision that I have for this type of a work is to be able to uh, have almost like a type of devotional book on Proverbs that isn't just a... A, a traditional devotional that has a one verse and then like two or three paragraphs, mm-hmm. but it's more like a devotional reading, um, more like a way to consistently be engaged in and exposed to the proverbial wisdom in the Bible and to be able to sort of have even maybe a, a proverb a day, which is like a five minute read almost, to be able to read through and then maybe get a little bit of deeper insight through one of the reader notes at the bottom to kind of ponder, meditate upon, probe into some of the, maybe the riddle, riddle type of nature, some of the intricacies that proverbial and wisdom literature offers, and to let that kind of sit with you and, and see what the Lord shows you and reveals to your heart. Would this also have an introduction to the book of Proverbs in it? Yeah, I've, I've written an introduction to, to Proverbs, 
that orients the reader to Hebrew poetry. Mm-hmm. And it's semi-technical in nature because Hebrew poetry is not an easy thing. And uh, But I think if a person reads through it, they will be more prepared. And I'm also having uh, some of the major themes in Proverbs, which are important, such things as wisdom and foolishness, life and death, righteousness and wickedness, what those terms really refer to. Because in Proverbs, when it talks about the righteous person, that's a different type of a nuance than when Paul talks about a righteous person in his letters in the New Testament. Awesome. So I I think this sounds like a great idea. I personally feel like I, I, I need to do business with Proverbs. I, I don't know. It's just like so much wisdom there. And, you know, I've read it before several times, but you, you need to refresh yourself on these things or else you forget it. And I, and I in all honesty, I think I, I just haven't really meditated enough on certain of those Proverbs. I just kind of read them fast and got to the next one and in one ear and out the other kind of a thing. And uh, I, I personally, I would, would really like to have a volume like this to, to use on a daily basis or you know for a, a specific period of time or throughout the year even to really work through and journal my own notes. And it sounds like a great idea. I, I'm really excited about this project. I think it's, it's meaningful. What would you say... Um, your publication date might be for this, you know, 10 years down the line, six months. I mean, where, where are we talking about here? No, we're, we're talking about having the manuscript really completed by the end of the year. So uh, sometime early 2018 uh, should be released. And I will get you your own signed copy. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. That's, that'd be great. So, hey, uh, listeners, I will let you know when, when this comes out so that you can... Uh, can uh, benefit from the scholarship and also, and especially the wisdom of the book of Proverbs, something we desperately need. I, I desperately need it. And in, in, I need it in work. I need it in my relationship with my wife. I need it in parenting. I need it in uh, so many areas of life, this, this kind of wisdom. So thanks so much for coming in today, Jerry. Yeah. Thanks, Sean. All right. Well, that's it for this interview. I wanted to mention there are a few links on the show notes for this episode. First of all, I have a link to Dr. Jerry Werewolf's website, which is simply just jerrywerewolf.com. And I also put a link to the revised English version of Proverbs uh, so that you can see the translation that he's talking about. And I have a link to Robert Alter's book, The Art of Biblical Poetry, which Wirrell used in order to get some of the insight he shared in this episode. So thanks so much for tuning in. Please share this on social media and let people know about this show. And hey, why not dig into the book of Proverbs this week and see what kind of treasures you can mine and apply to your life. So take a look. We'll see you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.